Hey, we the people listeners, this is Nikandra Yanachi, your producer. As you know, we are collecting questions for an episode of Ask Jeff later this month. We have already received several excellent, excellent questions, but we want more. We want to hear from everyone. So please go to blog.constitutioncenter.org and uh, send us your questions. You can also tweet them to us at ConstitutionCTR or uh, post them on our Facebook page. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And on today's show, we dive into the constitutional debate over the regulation and legalization of marijuana. The drug was first outlawed nationally by their Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. Since 1970, marijuana has been classified as an illegal Schedule I drug under the Controlled Substances Act. But in 1996, California became the first state to allow the use of marijuana for medical purposes. Uh, As we record this show, in May 2016, 24 states and the District of Columbia have legalized medical marijuana. Four states, that's Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Alaska, as well as D.C., have also legalized recreational marijuana. This November, more states, including Nevada and Maine, will vote on the issue. Joining us to explore the constitutional issues at stake in this uh, fascinating uh, series of legal questions are two of America's leading experts in the field. Douglas Berman is the Robert J. Watkins Procter & Gamble Professor of Law at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. And Randy Barnett is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center. Randy was at the NCC just a few weeks ago to discuss his great new book, Our Republican Constitution. You can watch that superb program at constitutioncenter.org or listen to it on our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall. Doug, Randy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, great great to be here, Jeff. Wonderful. Doug, let's uh, jump right in. I just gave the stats about 24 states in D.C. legalizing medical marijuana and four states in D.C. legalizing marijuana for recreational purposes. Uh, Tell us more about the background of those uh, laws and what happens when state and federal laws conflict on the same issue. Tee up some of the legal questions that we're going to be talking about today. Sure. Well, uh, I find these issues so interesting and dynamic. I teach an entire seminar at my law school on these topics because the simple story is states are deciding that they want to repeal uh, their own drug prohibitions, and in so doing, they can only legalize, whether it's medicinal use of marijuana or recreational use, uh, under their own state laws. They can't prevent the federal government from continuing to enforce blanket federal prohibition. And the key about blanket federal prohibition is by putting marijuana on Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act, That was a conclusion by Congress that's upheld by a failure to change that scheduling, uh, that there is no valid medical use for marijuana and that uh, marijuana is an addictive substance. The Controlled Substances Act has five schedules that uh, place drugs up and down it, and there are different regulations and restrictions that apply. Schedule one is the most severe prohibition. It means it's a crime uh, to be involved in this substance at all. 
So while uh, Colorado, the state that has had the kind of most robust development of its recreational marijuana sales, and now you can go uh, to just about every uh, big city in Colorado and easily find a dispensary where uh, you can buy marijuana, you are still uh, acting in violation of federal drug law and, in fact, could be federally prosecuted for that. Uh, nevertheless, the uh, Obama Justice Department uh, living up to a promise that was made by then-candidate Obama back in 2007-2008 that he wouldn't interfere with state medical marijuana programs, uh, kind of gave the green light that the feds would use its discretion not to prosecute individuals who were, in the language of its memos, fully compliant with state law. And that originally started just focused on the medical marijuana states back in 2009. That itself was one of the factors that I think drove activists <clears throat> to try to move forward with ballot initiatives for full recreational marijuana reform. And as a result, we got Colorado, then Washington, followed by Oregon and Alaska and the District of Columbia saying, <clears throat> we want full legalization. We don't want any restrictions. We don't want people to have to come in and claim they have a medical condition to have access to marijuana. They're still breaking federal law, uh, but they're not going to get prosecuted at the state level. And at least in the current administration, the memos are out there that we're not going to go after individual users as long as they're complying with their state regulations and laws for allowing medical use, allowing recreational use. Fascinating. Thank you very much for that helpful summary. Uh, Randy, Doug mentioned the question of medical marijuana. In 2005, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in Gonzalez and Raich, a case in which you were counsel. The court decided that the Commerce Clause did give Congress the authority to prohibit the local cultivation and use of marijuana despite a state law. To the contrary, can you tell us about the reasoning of the court's decision, why you think that was wrong, and how that decision interacts with the memorandum that Doug just mentioned, this Ogden memorandum that President Obama's Justice Department issued that says that as a general matter, pursuit of federal priorities should not focus federal resources in your states on individuals whose activities are in clear and unambiguous compliance with existing state laws providing for the medical use of marijuana. Um, sure. I mean, I should probably mention, in addition to the fact that I was the lawyer for Angel Rach and Diane Monson in our challenge to, in their challenge to the Affordable Care, I mean, sorry, the Affordable Care, I talk about reverting to the old, <laughs> other cases, to the controlled substances. That was act. another great victory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I got better vote this time. I, last time was six to three, then I went up to five to four. You're but anyway, so, um, the, um, so I represented them in their challenge, and uh, I always like to say at this point in the discussion that I have never tried marijuana myself. In fact, um, which is somebody something for somebody my age is something that's kind of almost embarrassing to admit. But I did vow to Angel that I would have my first uh, uh, marijuana with her um, when it was completely legal. And so now it's legal in the District of Columbia where I live, but it's not completely legal yet. So um, I'm waiting for it to be com completely legal, and then I will— uh, have my first marijuana let me, uh, cigarette. Let me just ask, because this is such an important uh, event for you, what would it mean for it to be completely legal? You mean across it the would entire be, country? It would mean that it would be legal under both state and federal law. And as Doug has already told you, it's legal under some state laws, including the District of Columbia, where I live. But it's not, I would be violating federal law, the Controlled Substances Act, if I were to possess um, this substance. And we challenged that, co the constitutionality of that, law, but only as applied to people who were using uh, medical marijuana as authorized by state law. 
And um, we argued that even though Congress did have the power under the Commerce Clause to prohibit the interstate um, sale and trade and movement uh, of marijuana and other drugs from state to state, it did not have the power to reach inside a state and stop somebody from growing a plant on their own property, as Diane Monson was doing, or have it grown for her by John Doe caregivers, as the case was with Angel Rach, who were not receiving any money for it, and all the um, uh, materials that were used to produce this marijuana were wholly intrastate and within the state. And for that reason, it was outside the Congress's power over interstate commerce to reach this wholly intrastate activity that was not even economic in nature. Uh, we went all the way to the Supreme Court. I was involved in litigation of various aspects of this for quite a long time. We went to the Supreme Court. I argued the case. And in 2005, we lost. Um, and we lost uh, the reasoning of the uh, the majority opinion by Justice Stevens was that um, uh, I have to step back for just one minute and explain what the, the ruling of Lopez and Morrison, two Commerce Clause cases were in 1995 and 2000. Those cases uh, held that uh, Congress, could, uh, that the Gun-Free School Zone Act was unconstitutional and the Violence Against Women Act was unconstitutional in one respect because those acts purported to uh, prohibit um, interest, wholly intrastate and non-economic activity, the activity of uh, having a gun within a thousand feet of a school and the activity of uh, of engaging in gender-motivated violence. Neither one of these were economic activities. And what the Rehnquist Court had held is that Congress could only reach intrastate activity if that intrastate activity was economic in nature. And since in these two cases they were not economic, um, the Congress could not reach it. In the Rach case, we argued, of course, that growing a plant in your own backyard to use yourself is not economic. And therefore, we fell squarely within the, the uh, Lopez and Morrison cases. The government argued, and this is one of the areas in which we actually won in the case, Jeff, because uh, it could have been so much worse. Um, the government argued that any activity that substitutes for something you can buy on the market is itself an economic activity that Congress can reach. Um, and so, for example, because you can buy marijuana on the market, if you buy it for yourself, if you, if you grow it for yourself and then don't go on the market, that makes what you're doing economic as well, because it's a substitute for something you can get on the market, which was based, in my view, on a misreading of Wickard versus Filburn. So that's what the government argued, and we argued that— look, remind, if, remind the listeners what the very important Wickard and Filburn case was. Yeah, that was a, a, a New Deal case which allowed Congress to regulate the intrastate production of wheat, um, which was unquestionably an economic activity. Um, and and so uh, there, are, there are statements in Wickard that talk about substituting for things you can get on the interstate market that were used by the government to justify reaching um, Angel and Diane's activity. Uh, but we argued that this was, uh, was, was inappropriate and actually um, very dangerous because pretty much anything we do privately will, can be bought on the market. And if everything we do can be, is a substitute for something you can buy on the market, then Congress can reach anything. Um, and in fact, during oral argument, when I was being beaten up uh, pretty pretty badly by the justices, because only justices that ultimately voted against us asked me questions, and that, that makes for a pretty long 30 minutes, um, the only time I could get them off my back uh, was during the questioning about this particular issue. And then I said, after being pushed a couple times, that, look, hey, marital sex is something that substitutes for something you can buy on the market. You can get on the market, but that doesn't make marital sex an economic activity. Wow. How, and did, then, how did that go over at the court? 
they totally stopped dead in their tracks and changed subjects. It's the only time, <laughs> the only time I ever won anything, you know, on, in that argument. I actually beat, you know, back their argument. So it worked. And nice. so I, but as a result, I think in part because of that oral argument, frankly, um, Justice Stevens did not rely on the government's theory in reaching our, uh, 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 my client's activities. What he relied on instead was a 1966 Webster's Dictionary definition of economic, which included the Per, the, uh, the the production, consumption, um, and transfer uh, of uh, a commodity. And since marijuana was a commodity and it was being produced, therefore it was economic under the Webster, this Webster's Dictionary definition. And that's why we lost the case, because it was economic. Um, and, and therefore it fell under what Lopez and Morrison said you could reach. Uh, which is intrastate economic activity, and that's 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 the law we made there. It was very limited in how bad it was because it relied solely on this Webster's Dictionary definition. Okay, that is hugely helpful and interesting too. Okay, we now understand that there is this federal law, the Controlled Substances Act, which Congress ruled in, 20, in 2005 does not exceed Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. Um, and that that clashes with laws like the California law, this Compassionate Use Act, legalizing marijuana for medical use. Um, we also want to put on the table a 2011 memorandum where the Department of Justice said that this earlier memorandum, which seemed to tolerate state uh, marijuana for medicinal purposes, was never intended to shield re all recreational marijuana use from federal enforcement, Persons who are in the business of selling marijuana and those who knowingly facilitate such activities are in violation of the Controlled Substances Act, regardless of state law. Doug, tell us about the current state of play, about the tension between the Controlled Substances Act, which, whose constitutionality the Supreme Court has upheld, and these new initiatives in four states that legalize marijuana for recreational uh, purposes. Jeff, can I jump in here for just a minute before Doug answers that question? If you need to. Um, Yes, because because I just want to say, since you're the, it's the Constitution Center, and, I, and I, this is a big point, I think, the court has never said that this intrastate activity is itself commerce. It never redefined commerce. What it said was that the Congress could reach this intrastate activity regardless of whether it was commerce or not because it was economic activity that would affect interstate commerce. So I just want to say that these cases do not represent an expansion of the meaning of commerce. It represents an expansion of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause and then the Necessary and Proper Clause, which allows Congress to make laws to exercise, to put into effect its commerce power. So I just wanted to be clear for your National Constitution Society listeners. Thank you. All of us are grateful for that careful parsing of the case. That was very helpful. Yes, and, and let me, in fact, uh, not only compliment Randy for that careful parsing, but to suggest that one of the challenges that the Obama administration has faced is the disinclination for people who want to move into this arena, either as users of medical or recreational marijuana or particularly marketplace uh, act actors who would like to be in the business of selling uh, medical or recreational marijuana have not parsed uh, either legal status or Department of Justice memos as carefully uh, as as Randy or a bunch of other lawyers ought to suggest they do. And in fact, I bring that point up because it's really the backstory uh, of the the kind of back and forth in the tension between what states have been up to and what the federal government has been up to in this space, really going all the way back to 19. 96, as you mentioned, when California was the first state 
to, in a sense, legalize medical marijuana. I think it's actually valuable to keep in mind the very first uh, initiative that was passed by California voters was just an exemption, essentially, a defense to criminal liability. Um, and this actually goes back to a prior Supreme Court case uh, that was sort of the first application of that in the context of federal law. What California voters did way back in 96 was say, look, we recognize that people, and at the time it was often uh, early stage AIDS victims who were using marijuana to increase their appetite. We also had folks who were suffering from cancer who found that marijuana helped uh, with dealing with the after effects of chemotherapy. Um, California being, and compassionate use was the label you rightly put on their initiative, was saying, we're going to provide a criminal defense. If you have a medical basis for using marijuana, and again, this is what Randy's client was asserting uh, and was trying to grow her own to do so, and she was clearly compliant with California law, uh, we'll, we'll let you do that without having you f potentially subject to criminal prosecution. The feds have never permitted that. In fact, people argued up to the Supreme Court that such a medical use necessity defense ought to be read into uh, the federal law, but in another case that actually predates Raich, uh, the Supreme Court said, no, 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 Congress clearly is occupying the field here. They didn't want to allow for a medical defense. We're not going to read that into the law as a matter of statutory interpretation. Uh, and in fact, that ruling combined with uh, the Bush administration's sort of willingness to go after some cannabis clubs and others that were trying to make a profit from this exemption under California law led to much controversy over what were often described as medical marijuana facility rates. And you can already get the sense, or I'm trying to provide the sense, and I do this with my students, uh, how uh, hard-hearted it seems that you would potentially prosecute somebody who was trying to access marijuana, prosecute them under strict criminal laws, and federal criminal laws are pretty darn strict for any violation of the Controlled Substances Act, that you would prosecute them when they just want to use marijuana to help with the, the problems that come with having AIDS or cancer treatments. And that's why not only California, but a number of other states through initiatives mostly passed these medical marijuana exemptions to their criminal law. But the feds never came along for the ride. The Constitution, uh, as interpreted over Aunt Randy's arguments, allowed them uh, to uh, continue to enforce the Controlled Substances Act, even for homegrown medical use of marijuana in compliance uh, with state law. But that understandably not only uh, created some negative backlash among not just the marijuana reform community, but a number of patients' rights activists and others who are concerned about uh, helping sick people, but also folks um, who recognize, practically speaking, whatever the law is, practically speaking, uh, the feds are not going to prosecute and don't see it as in their best interest to prosecute everybody who's uh, involved in marijuana activities. Mostly we leave that to the states. Again, mostly the states have still prohibited uh, any marijuana activities, uh, except for medical now. We have this large number of states that have provided for that. Uh, and there's the sense that even if you know, it's an important priority for the, the feds, the lower level offenders, you know, even when we're talking about frauds or other sorts of things, uh, that's just um, you know, something that as a matter of prosecutorial discretion is not a good investment of federal prosecutors, federal resources. And that prompted uh, the Obama administration not only to campaign, or when he was running for president, campaign on saying, I'm going to stop these raids of medical marijuana facilities because I just don't think that's a good use uh, of federal time and energy. And that was politically popular. But then they wrote that in this original Ogden memo. And the problem was, this gets back to what I said before, 
the medical marijuana industry, uh, the folks who not just wanted to use marijuana to help with their own condition, but folks who saw the opportunity to turn a profit by growing, cultivating, distributing, supplying marijuana to those who needed it medically, including some who may not have needed it medically, but were in, uh, more than prepared to find a doctor who would say it would help with their back pain or help with uh, some other condition they claimed they had. Uh, those folks started entering the field and entering the field pretty dramatically uh, in a number of jurisdictions, uh, particularly states that had had, like California, uh, a decent amount of medical marijuana allowances, but still the concern about federal enforcement kept it from flourishing in Colorado, in Montana, in a number of other western states along with California. The medical marijuana industry started to grow reading this first Ogden memo in 2009 is this green light. Go ahead, do whatever you want. As long as you come close to complying with state law, we're going to leave you alone. That wasn't at all the intent uh, of the Obama administration, and they particularly were disconcerted by how much the industry developed uh, around not just providing to people who clearly were uh, quite sick and were turning to marijuana because they couldn't think of other options to help with a serious illness, but noticing more and more young people, more and more folks clearly taking advantage of a medical system and of people who are willing to market on the margins of a medical system for recreational purposes. That led to that 2011 memo that you mentioned, which tried to sort of explain, hey, 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 we didn't mean you could robustly get in the business of marketing, quote, unquote, medical marijuana to everybody nearby. We were just saying that if you're a patient, we're telling you don't be scared to go get your medicine in a legitimate way uh, if you're truly in clear and unambiguous compliance with the law. And I think what this shows is, um, you know, even as they're trying to help out the angel races of the world to at least explain that the federal government's not going to be committed to prosecuting you if you're complying with state law when you're truly sick and you want to have access to marijuana as medicine, once you give even a yellow light to those folks, there are going to be market participants, right? And so maybe to some extent this is where um, whatever the interpretation is as a constitutional matter, the reality is interstate commerce got affected as more and more people interested in being in the marijuana industry moved into those states and tried to at least on the surface comply with state law in an effort to make a profit from marketing to this newly allowed state-level usage that the federal government had said they would allow go forward. Fast forward another couple of years, then we get campaigns to go over the next transom, going from allowing under state law medical marijuana to full recreational regimes. And here again, California is kind of at the center of that universe. In 2010, California tried to pass a full recreational bill, but it just barely failed, partially because the established medical marijuana industry didn't want to see the competition that might come from a full recreational industry. Activists learned from that, and then in Colorado and Washington, they ran campaigns where they worked with the existing medical marijuana providers to build a campaign to get approval through initiative in the 2012 election cycle for full recreational reform. And what was very uncertain at that time is, would the Obama administration follow up its prior memo saying we're okay with medical marijuana regimes as long as they're limited. Uh, now that it, two states were focused on developing a regulatory regime for full recreational marijuana reform, that led to another follow-up memo, the Cole memo, that said, you know what, we have our priorities. Our priorities are keeping marijuana out of the hands of kids, keeping it from being the front for more serious drug use, uh, keeping it from federal property. But as long as you 
at the state level try hard to respect federal priorities, we're not going to come in and shut down uh, what you states are doing, Colorado and Washington, now Oregon and Alaska, with your recreational schemes. It was, in a sense, uh, again, a kind of green light to the regulators in their, those states that the feds were going to allow the states to move forward with full rec recreational marijuana regulatory regimes without federal interference. Interestingly, and this gets back to a constitutional story, uh, two neighboring states of Colorado, after a year in which the regulations were fully implemented in Colorado, specifically uh, Oklahoma and Nebraska, went directly to the Supreme Court and sued Colorado, saying that they were violating, in a sense, the Constitution by not respecting the Supremacy Clause, by trying to engineer their own regulatory regime that was in direct violation of the Federal Controlled Substances Act. Uh, and many people were watching that suit because it was brought as an original suit between states directly to the Supreme Court. However, the Supreme Court a few months ago said, yeah, we, we don't think we'll look at this as an original suit. They have authority to deny uh, taking up those cases. And so after Colorado defended itself saying, you know, we're not, we're not violating the Controlled Substances Act, we're trying our best uh, to respect federal priorities as we're regulating our own criminal laws. Uh, the Supreme Court declined to intervene there, and now we have states all seeing that both the current Justice Department and kind of indirectly the Supreme Court is comfortable with this arguably um, bipolar world, you might say, where we have activities that are now fully legal under state law and we have robust marketplaces, uh, not just medical but recreational. Uh, developing in a number of states while still everything that all of these individuals are doing is in direct violation of federal criminal law. But right now that's being left as a matter of discretion uh, and because the trends both in terms of public support and in legal reform are building towards more and more states uh, reforming their state criminal laws on both fronts, both medical and recreational. Uh, the predictions are that uh, federal law is going to give at some point, but exactly when, how, uh, and under what administration there's some actual formal change to the Controlled Substances Act is the, the next big question for the next couple of years. Great. Thank you so much for that. Randy, let us dig in on this question of what uh, Doug called this bipolar uh, tension between federal and state law, in particular the status of recreational users in Colorado. Um, after the passage of Amendment 64. Tell us more about this Nebraska um, and Oklahoma suit, which, as Doug said, the Supreme Court rejected. Uh, the complaint in this suit wanted the court to say that the commercial regime set up by Colorado was preempted by federal law and is unenforceable. It wanted an order blocking any application of the amendment's marketing provision. It wanted a separate order blocking application of state laws that put its commercial aspects into effect. Um, and the Supreme Court... Uh, refused to take the case with Justice Thomas and Justice Alito dissenting. As a legal and constitutional matter, what was the court thinking? Why didn't it take the case? And does it make sense for the administration to refuse to enforce this federal law that seems to be in clear conflict with state law? Uh, yes. I should just mention in passing here that I was one of the lawyers in the other case that Doug mentioned, the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative case, the early case. Um, and I was very fortunate that I didn't argue that case. We lost that case eight to nothing. Hmm. So the numbers, uh, I would have, it would have been another victory for me. Um, <laughs> only that one would have been an eight to nothing victory of sorts. Uh, Jerry Ullman from uh, 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 
Santa Clara Law School argued that case. Anyway, well, sir, since you uh, since you mentioned it, that was the case. Uh, tell us about that. What that case was and why the court. Well, that about it. as Doug said, it was it was not a constitutional case. There was a commerce clause theory in that case. Actually, it led to the Rach case um, because um, there was we were we had won below on the issue of whether. Um, uh, built into the statute or implicit in the federal statute should be a defense based on medical necessity that in fact uh, in order to preserve when you're cha- faced between a choice of two evils one is preserving your life and the other one is to um, uh, obey federal law that there there is a built-in defense that allows you to preserve your life which was called the necessity defense but this was adapted to be called the medical necessity defense um, and and uh, that was the issue that we won on below in the Ninth Circuit, and it went to the Supreme Court, and we lost eight to nothing. Um, it was not nine to nothing because Justice Breyer had to recruise himself because his brother Charles Breyer was the trial judge. And the way I got involved in both um, um, this case and the Commerce Clause uh, later cases that uh, the, judge, the trial judge asked the parties to brief the Ninth Amendment, and they went around the country to find somebody who knew about the Ninth Amendment, and they came to me, and I agreed to help them. With their cop, with their Ninth Amendment are part of their Commerce Clause case, and then I got involved in that case, and we brought the Rach case. Frankly, uh, it grew out of the OCBC case because in OCBC, people went into um, uh, these cooperatives um, with money in their pocket and no marijuana, and they walked out with less money in their pocket and marijuana, which meant that money and marijuana were changing hands. And under the definition of commerce, that actually is within the original meaning of the meaning of commerce itself, not even economic activity. So commerce was happening in those things. And that made that case harder. We brought the Rach case specifically because it gave us facts that in which no commerce and no economic activity was happening. So OCBC led to Rach uh, for this litigation reason. And and actually, uh, Angel Rach was my co-counsel, Rob Rach's uh, wife. um, And that's how that case came about. Interesting. Okay, back to Nebraska and Oklahoma no, versus Nebraska. Colorado. Right. Tell well, us that was a f- so this whole issue it, it raises important issues of federalism, which, as you know, I speak about at length in my uh, book, Our Republican Constitution. Riveting. Uh, um, yes. And the idea here is that really uh, most important social – my point is that most under our original constitution, most of the important social and economic issues should really be handled by the states. Um, and so states can compete as laboratories of, legis- of, of experimentation only to be constrained um, by the guardrails of the 14th Amendment so that they don't themselves violate the rights of their own citizens. Um, and if this were the case, then other st- states could um, experiment and people could go and live in one state or another state. But because issues like drug laws have been pushed up to the federal level – which they have been over the last hundred years, more and more issues pushed up to the federal level, you have a one-size-fits-all solution uh, to these social and economic problems. And then there becomes a conflict between the under the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, which says that the Constitution and laws of Congress are supreme over those of state laws. You have a problem with the supremacy of federal law when they conflict with state laws. Now, as long as both states and federal government are acting concurrently to outlaw something, then you don't have a problem. Um, You don't have a problem when the federal government isn't regulating and only states are regulating. You don't have a problem. But you do have a problem when the federal government is regulating and the states are not regulating, in particular when the federal government is prohibiting something and the states are not prohibiting something. Then you have a problem because citizens can be doing something legal under state law that's illegal under federal law. What, the, what Nebraska and Oklahoma have, have argued is that um, the supremacy clause ought to preempt 
um, any state laws that allow this behavior. And we and there have actually been a number of preemption arguments um, uh, made about the Controlled Substances Act over state laws that had been turned away by lower courts. And so their preemption argument is actually pretty weak. There's nothing that makes us, and nothing in the Constitution, nothing in the Supremacy Clause compels states to make things illegal just because the feds are things illegal. If the feds want to make something illegal, they can do it. Nothing, it would be commandeering the states to say state legislatures have to make something illegal just because the feds have. And that would actually violate other case law that you and I know about, like the Prince case, for example. However, what the Oklahoma and Nebraska states uh, attorney generals are arguing is not only the supremacy argument, which I think is very weak, but they're also arguing that it's the existence of of, of Colorado's um, legalization regime that's adversely affecting their states because, in fact, their residents are going across the border, they're buying drugs, they're coming across the border, and that's creating a hazard in traffic and other things. Uh, and so there's a spillover effect that's happening from one state to another, and that's what these attorney general are also uh, uh, complaining about. Um, now, the issue is, do they have a constitutional claim? Well, if the supremacy clause does not create one, and I think it doesn't, then I think they do not have a constitutional claim. What they have is they have a political argument to be made against the Obama administration for not enforcing federal law. The person who's responsible to enforce federal law is the executive of the federal government, who was the president of the United States. And so what's creating the spillover effect and the negative externalities that the attorneys general of Oklahoma and Nebraska are complaining about um, isn't um, Colorado state law per se, uh, and it isn't anything that the courts can, can rectify. It's something that has to be rectified by the enforcement arm of the federal government, which is the Obama administration, and they, as Doug has already told you, have declined to do so. That's their beef. That they do, what they can't do, I think, is get a federal court involved to make the Obama administration uh, uh, do this sort of thing. Very interesting, Doug. How? Let me uh, just, let me just little, uh, go, go ahead. What I just said. What they are doing is they're seeking to invalidate. Uh, they're seeking to invalidate Colorado law. And Doug can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I think that's the remedy they're seeking. They're saying Colorado laws are unconstitutional. That's what they cannot do. It would be a separate matter, and I, I misstated this a minute ago. It would be a separate matter if they could bring a lawsuit against the federal government and compel the Obama administration under the Take Care Clause to enforce the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, but that would not be the interstate conflict that they did bring in front of the Supreme Court. Very interesting. And we've, Doug, I'm going to ask, I'm going to tee it up by this way. We, we've talked about the take care suit against President Obama uh, for his failure to enforce immigration laws. So, Doug, my question is, how secure is a marijuana user in Colorado under a President Trump or President Clinton administration? Uh, I should say I was in Colorado a few uh, months ago during it was both Gay Ski Week and uh, the, the Obergefell decision had just come down and the the, the marijuana provision had just passed, and the joke on the lifts was that this had vindicated the provision in Leviticus, he who lies with another man shall be stoned. So, the, <laughs> so my question is, um, if, if, if Randy's right that it's really up to the president to enforce or not enforce these laws, is, is a President Clinton or President Trump more likely than a President Obama not to enforce the federal law? How stable is that, and what is the legal status of drug use in, in Colorado? Um, so uh, a wonderful question. Again, would I spend a couple weeks in my seminar sort of unpacking, both because, um, you know, practically speaking, um, even in states that have 
still prohibited marijuana, my sense is the average marijuana user uh, doesn't worry about the federal government breaking down their door. They may worry about state police, local police. They may certainly worry about getting in trouble with their employer under a drug test. But the reality has long been, well before we even had medical marijuana reform, certainly um, before we had recreational marijuana reform, that the federal government was not able to, just as a pure practical matter, uh, enforce marijuana prohibition uh, on the ground against every grower, user, seller uh, on the black market. What the federal government can do, what the fear was they might do, uh, particularly in Colorado and Washington right after they passed into their law but hadn't yet rolled out their recreational reforms, is threaten to go after the above-market suppliers, growers, distributors, right, the folks who are there trying to make money from this because the understandable concern is, okay, maybe you're legal under state law, but you're un illegal under federal law, and the easiest way for the federal government uh, to clamp down uh, on a marketplace uh, that's above board under state law would be to go after the people who are there trying to make money uh, in that marketplace. And so I think for the individual user, medical or recreational in any state, uh, even a new administration, even if there was a turn in public opinion about marijuana, still wouldn't need to worry about that from a federal law enforcement perspective any more than they did in the past, just as a pure practical matter. But for the people who are interested in being in this industry, the money that's been flowing to investments, to developing um, special programming, special stores, special dispensaries, you know, there are uh, now an entire um, above-ground uh, set of sort of collateral uh, commercial industries that have attended to recreational reform. Uh, those are all things that could be come in the crosshairs of a new administration if, and this is the very big if, uh, if the politics change here, and right now it doesn't seem like they are. One of the things that uh, was part of sort of the doom and gloom predictions, practically speaking, was that after we saw recreational reform in a number of states, uh, people would become unhappy with what they saw. They wouldn't like the transformation in culture and, and, and uh, commercialization uh, of this product. And certainly there are people who remain opposed to marijuana reform who say things have gotten a lot worse in Colorado. But for the average voter, certainly the voter who supported marijuana reform in Colorado and elsewhere, uh, support for legalization seems to continue to grow, uh, not retrench. And so politically, I think it's unlikely, even if a more conservative administration were to take over, uh, that they're likely to go into Colorado, go into other recreational states and start uh, even going after the biggest suppliers and distributors. In addition, even if they were to uh, approach the issue that way, uh, again, both because of the politics, but now also because of the economics. They would be putting an awful lot of people out of work. Um, it's an industry that started to employ uh, a significant number of people. There's been extraordinary investments. In fact, among other things that maybe Randy has some thoughts about is it's quite possible I could see people who have invested heavily in this industry in legal states claiming whether it would be a taking or some kind of probably far-fetched but still not insignificant uh, legal theory for why you can't shut them down now after they've kind of relied to their detriment uh, on the assurances that have come out of the Obama administration uh, to date. Now, again, that could radically change if um, a President Trump with an Attorney General Christie uh, decided politically that they wanted to reverse course here. But I think there are lots and lots of forces, again, political but also practical, that make it likely that this genie is not 
easily put back in, in the bottle. Randy, take us forward to a Trump or Clinton administration and also a Trump or Clinton court. Uh, Rach was six to three. If uh, Justice Scalia were replaced by a Republican nominee, is there some chance that Rach could be reversed, that you would get the constraints on commerce power that you sought? And is, is the court the most probable way of actually striking down the Federal <laughs> Controlled Substances Act? Um, I, I don't see any prospect of that whatsoever. Um, we have um, Justices O'Connor and Chief Justice Rehnquist, who were part of our three votes, along with Justice Thomas, are not on the court anymore, replaced by Justices Alito and Roberts. Um, <clears throat> I can't imagine, it's hard for me to imagine that either one of them would have come out um, as Rehnquist and O'Connor did in Rach even. Um, so there's that. Um, so I don't see the courts as an avenue uh, at this point um, in in attacking the Federal uh, Controlled Substances Act, which we never challenged, uh, by the way. We were only challenging it as applied in, within a state that had recognized it. And um, at this point, I would say Rach uh, is pretty stable. Uh, and, um, and you know me, uh, Jeff, I would not <laughs> want to push the envelope in making legal arguments that uh, <laughs> some might consider so, to be marginal so, or I'm, even I'm, frivolous. Certainly not. I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump in and say that there is, I think, some uh, opportunity for uh, a different set of jurisprudence here, but it's not going to be based in the Commerce Clause. Uh, I've been thinking an awful lot lately as more and more states come online with medical marijuana programs, as more and more states uh, even get to recreational marijuana, that there may be arguments now under the Eighth Amendment, uh, right? That's the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. This would be not uh, an assertion that Congress doesn't have the power uh, to criminalize this activity. It would be an assertion that in light of evolving national consensus, in light of the change in law at the state level, especially if we ever get to a point, which I don't think is implausible, uh, that we have 35 or 40 states that have robust medical marijuana programs, uh, that you make an assertion that to punish a sick person, or at least even threaten punishment of a sick person uh, who's accessing medical marijuana compliant with state law when the public uh, is so supportive of that, uh, would be a violation of the Eighth Amendment's Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause. Now, I don't think that that's something that lots, of course, will be eager to embrace, but I think it's, it's more likely, as, as Randy suggests, than um, seeing the court uh, retrench on its Commerce Clause jurisprudence, especially because, as he puts his finger on, that, that um, you know there have been changes in the court that seem as supportive, if not more supportive, of broad federal power um, as some of the folks who've left. Very interesting. And indeed, as uh, you suggested, Justice Scalia and other judges have suggested that it's appropriate in figuring out the scope of the Eighth Amendment to look at what states are doing. So if a majority of states uh, legalize, that that might indeed get some traction. Okay. Um, I think it's time, gentlemen, for uh, closing arguments. Uh, so, Randy, tell us what you think the future of marijuana legalization will be and how you think the tension between federal and state laws will be resolved over the next five years. Uh, well, I'm not, I have really no idea uh, what's going to happen. I, I will say in response to what Doug said about the Eighth Amendment, that this is a, this is maybe an example now that he brings it up of where um, uh, Democratic nominations to the court and a flipping of the court away from the direction it's currently been would actually make justices 
this is an issue on which justices might be somewhat more receptive than they have been in the past uh, to a, a, a cruel and unusual punishment theory that have been rejected time and again by the Supreme Court in, over the last 20, 25 years. So a more, uh, with justices appointed by a Democratic uh, president, you might actually get a more receptive hearing than you have at any time in the recent past. So there's that for the future. Um, look, I think that uh, the political it's a political movement for reform and liberalizing marijuana laws has proceeded far more rapidly than people ever would have expected in a uh, in a political system in which it's out it's against the law to do any of this at the federal level and the federal government seems incapable of changing that our federal our federal system has allowed a certain amount of what you might call civil disobedience by states to uh, experiment with medical marijuana regimes, 24 states, as you mentioned, and now to experiment with recreational marijuana regimes because there is a popular demand for this liberalization that the Congress will not respond to. So what's left of our Republican Constitution and what's left of our federalism um, has allowed um, people at the local level, activists at the local level, to lobby and for and get some protection for what they want uh, in the face of federal prohibitions to the contrary, creating a dynamic in which once enough states, once a critical mass of states have um, legalized this activity, you then create an impetus, a political impetus at the congressional level to allow uh, for, for to, to allow to to require the government to uh, by federal law, by not by executive discretion, but by actual statute to accommodate at the very minimum to accommodate states that have changed their laws this way or possibly simply to finally take marijuana off Schedule One, where, as Doug mentioned, it was put on by the original Congress as part of the statute. It wasn't done by any administrative oversight or hearing that that marijuana was indeed uh, qualified uh, to be to met, met the met the requirements of Section One, but it was put on there by Congress, and no one will take it off. And if it gets taken off section of, of Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, that would be a huge change in public policy that would be driven from the grassroots up by the existence of a federal system in our under our Republican Constitution. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Doug, last word to you. What do you think the future of the movement for marijuana legalization is, and how will the tension between federal and state law be resolved over the next five years? Excellent. Well, Randy sort of uh, laid it out very nicely, and I think if we see, which I think is pretty darn likely, not only... Uh, a handful more significant states become robust medical marijuana states. And as we're speaking now in May 2016, there is a both a bill and uh, an initiative movement in Ohio. That's a bellwether swing state and significant. It looks like we're going to have some kind of medical marijuana before the end of this calendar year. There's a vote on medical marijuana in Florida that seems likely to pass another very important swing state, uh, highly populous state. Pennsylvania just came online with its medical marijuana program earlier this year. I mention all those states because it really does echo uh, an aspect of what Randy was talking about. As you get more states online, particularly the larger states, you have more members of the House of Representatives who are now in a jurisdiction where their local residents have indicated through their processes that they want a more liberalized regime than blanket prohibition. And folks who even may be fairly conservative uh, on the substantive issue uh, are likely to be eager to protect their own state-level constituents from the overreach of federal law. So we've seen that in the recreational states. Generally, they've been the more progressive states, but even conservative members uh, of 
the uh, congressional delegation have been supportive of reform of federal prohibition, or at least changes to aspects of federal law that right now stand in the way uh, of the development of state medical or recreational regimes. We haven't talked about it. It's a, it's a, not a constitutional issue so much, but federal banking laws are problematic because of federal prohibition. Banks that are federally uh, insured can't take money from marijuana businesses because that's taking money from what are essentially federal drug traffickers and the like. And so as more and more states have come online, both with recreational reform but even with medical reform, you get more and more members of Congress who not only recognize this conflict between federal and state law and see its instability, but see how their own constituents are hurt by that and they're pushing forward. In fact, they already have enacted in a couple spending bills uh, a quirky provision that says the Department of Justice isn't to spend money going after medical marijuana regimes, and there's a lot of controversy over exactly what that provision means, and it's just in the spending bill, so it's not enduring. But I think it's inevitable, uh, again, barring some significant change in the way the political trends are going, that Congress is going to have to make some amendments. And then the question becomes, it's a very interesting question, what kind of change to federal law do we see? There have been a bunch of bills one of the ones that's most interesting and one of the ones that maybe Randy especially would find fascinating, not just for the marijuana arena, but in other arenas as well, would be a statute that says there's a blanket exception to the Controlled Substances Act based on state changes, right? So that federal law itself only applies where state law is co consistent with it. And so it would essentially provide an exemption so that the Controlled Substances Act wouldn't be amended nationwide. But in a state where marijuana has been legalized, the feds would have to respect that. And there are some other examples in criminal law where federal law technically builds off of whatever the state practices are. So that would be one model of reform. What I actually think is much more likely is we will get uh, a move of marijuana off Schedule 1, but a, a very, uh, every pun intended, inside-the-weeds analysis of this that's very interesting but worth people thinking about is the simple question of whether marijuana gets rescheduled under the Controlled Substances Act, moved to Schedule 2, which would allow for the development of more above-board medical research and would turn marijuana kind of into the equivalent of opiates, where there would be illegal marijuana that could still be on the black market like heroin, but then there'd be legal opiates that could be used and developed for medical purposes by uh, legitimate pharmaceutical companies and doctors and the like. That would be the result of rescheduling marijuana. But what the most a uh, aggressive and forceful advocates for marijuana reform are hoping for is actually the descheduling of marijuana. Having marijuana completely removed from the Controlled Substances Act regime, that would put it on par with alcohol and tobacco. Uh, amazingly and interestingly and significantly, even though alcohol and tobacco are both quite addictive substances, the initial decision by Congress was not to address alcohol or tobacco at all through the Controlled Substances Act. And the most robust marijuana reformers who typically want to see a pretty free market, uh, or at least have it be just only a matter subject principally to state regulation rather than have any federal overlay, are likely to be advocating for descheduling of marijuana rather than just its rescheduling. And the reason I bring that up and the reason I find it so interesting is because if you deschedule marijuana, you actually are giving a very green light and are likely to see recreational reforms and regimes flourish, uh, and perhaps even medical regimes wouldn't do as successfully 
because there might not be the same incentive for Big Farm and others to work through traditional research if this is just a recreational project product. Conversely, though, if it's rescheduled, uh, then we won't see, and we might even see more enforcement at the federal level of the recreational regimes to prevent misuse of this quote-unquote medicine uh, and have more funneling of energies and research and advocacy towards true medical development uh, of this plant. Uh, and again, one of the things that I find so interesting about that debate is depending on whether you uh, are a reformer in general or are particularly concerned about marijuana's potential as a medicine, that might uh, change your perspective on whether you'd rather see rescheduling or descheduling. And as is often the case, the, the, the devil will be in the details with whatever Congress passes. But candidly, I will be surprised, let's just put it this way, uh, that uh, if the next president and the next Congress, now I'm talking really the next president because it may take eight years, but I would be surprised if we go through two more administrations without seeing some significant change in federal marijuana prohibition given all the state-level development we've seen to date. Thank you so much, Douglas Berman and Randy Barnett, for a nuanced, uh, illuminating uh, tutorial on federalism, the relationship between state and federal power, and the future of marijuana legalization in Congress, in the executive branch, in the states, and finally, sorry, I can't help it, at the high court. Doug, Randy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Constitution CTR, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash Constitution CTR. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debates presented here at the Constitution Center across from Independence Hall in lovely Philadelphia. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this great podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.